three, two, one. Hit it. What? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't with Jesus some of these people. Put down um, on your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, uh, would you rather? All right, trust me, take no, my advice. No, but seriously, that legit happened. How's it going, guys? Welcome to Nervous Habits. This week, I'm joined by Professor of Neuroscience, Dr. Austin Lim, for a conversation on psychedelics. We explore issues including... Why psychedelics like LSD, DMT, and magic mushrooms are classified as Schedule 1 controlled substances. What sort of impact these drugs have on the neurotransmitters in your brain in both the short term and long term. Why the placebo effect is so powerful in treatment of depression and anxiety. And finally, how likely it is that these drugs might be used in the future in lieu of antidepressants to treat mental health disorders. All that and so much more on another episode of... Nervous Habits. Hey guys, I hope that everyone is having a, a wonderful week, day, month, uh, whenever, wherever you're listening to this, whether you're in the car, you're on a walk, you're cooking, you're cleaning, you're at the gym. I uh, hope that hope that you're doing you're doing great and things are looking up for you um, as as the warm weather finally comes. It's it's been a, a t- tough winter to say the least. Um, I want to say right off the bat that this episode is going to be a real treat. I mean, it was a, it was a treat to record and I hope hopefully listening to it will be really enjoyable as well. And that's because we're going to be talking about uh, neuroscience and psychology. And for me, there are a couple topics that really light me up that, that get me super excited. I sort of geek out over them. And one of them is, is psychology is when it comes to the brain and the underlying chemical and electrical things with your neurons and, and with synaptic transmission in the brain that give way to behavior that lead to um, uh, emotional and mood disorders like depression and anxiety. Though These conversations are what are really fascinating to me from a sort of from like a, an academic perspective because I, I studied psychology in college and also when I was a kid, I mean, I still have in my childhood bedroom <clears throat> just tons and tons of books about the mind. Kids my age were reading The Hobbit and Captain Underpants and I was reading, uh, you know, textbooks for high school, AP psychology, uh, and also from sort of a personal perspective, uh, I've mentioned on the pod before, but I do, you know, have struggle with anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder and OCD. So it's, it's really interesting to hear about what's happening in my brain from, uh, you know, from an expert. And I haven't really had a neuroscience expert on the pod before. Um, I've had folks who are generalists in psychology, um, you know, I've had an addiction specialist, but this is really the first time I have a bona fide um, expert to talk about the brain, and I'm really excited about that. And besides just neuroscience more generally, we're also going to be talking about drugs and psychedelics, which is really different. Um, it's something that I haven't talked about on the pod before. It's something I don't know a lot about, so I learned a lot during my conversation with Dr. Austin Lim. And it's something that I think is going to be more and more, uh, you're going to see it trending more in the news and in uh, public discourse in the next couple of years, because whether or not you, you realize it, there is growing research that, that states that psychedelics and, um, you know, similar classes of drugs might have benefits for the treatment of, uh, certain mental disorders. So it, it's it's really really a a super fun discussion um and and like always I hope that you'll go in with an open mind I know when I entered the conversation with Austin I thought there's no way there's no way that I would ever consider taking LSD or um 
and any of the magic mushrooms <laughs> for the treatment of, of depression. But he certainly makes makes a convincing case um, for controlled uh, single or multiple dose uh, treatments in conjunction with talk therapy. And we'll and you'll hear all about that in a couple moments. First, I want to introduce our guest. Uh, I'm joined by Dr. Austin Lim this episode. Austin is a professor teaching neuroscience at DePaul University in Chicago. His previous research at Northwestern and the University of Chicago has led to advancements in our understanding of neural communication and movement disorders such as Parkinson's disease and Huntington's disease. His research has been published in scientific journals and his writing can be seen in venues such as Scientific American, Illinois Science Council, and Helix Magazine. So I actually first heard about Austin's work when he published an article in Scientific American a couple weeks ago. It was titled, Psychedelics as Antidepressants. The treatments of the future may arise from a long-stigmatized class of drugs. And you should absolutely um, check out that article in Scientific American. It's dated January 30th, 2021, titled, Psychedelics as antidepressants written by Dr. Um, Austin Lim. And most of the, the substance of the, the article we're going to be discussing, but the thesis statement is just just that the antidepressants of the future, rather than being SSRIs, uh, which which folks take today, like Prozac and Lexapro and Zoloft, instead, you know, they might be uh, LSD or magic mushrooms or DMT, uh, serotonergic, Serotonogenic psychedelics, I can't even say it, but um, Austin mentions it in, in the conversation. So I'll have more to say about the conversation after the episode. But without further ado, my conversation with Dr. Austin Lim. Nervous Habits Podcast is sponsored by Grammarly. So I don't think you guys realize it, but we get so many messages and and we're creating so many documents throughout the course of a day that our writing starts to blend together and sound more or less the same. You use the same tone in an email to your aunt or, or, or your, your great uncle that you might use when emailing a, a colleague or, you know, maybe shooting a message to your girlfriend. So more effective writing requires that we differentiate in things like tone and clarity and really narrow tailor it to our audience. And Grammarly Premium can actually provide real-time insights and guidance on these things like tone, word choice, clarity, and more, so you can communicate clearly and confidently with whoever you're speaking to. You can harness the power of Grammarly on every platform with their desktop editor, browser plugin, and mobile apps. Improve your writing on all your favorite sites and apps, including Outlook, Gmail, Twitter. Twitter's a, a, a big one for me. I, I, if, if, let's put it this way. If I spend as much time on my schoolwork as I do on Twitter, <laughs> I think that I'd be a little bit of a better situation with school. Don't just say it. Make a statement with clear, flawless text that is sure to impress. And Grammarly doesn't just correct your mistakes, right? That's that's what you have spell check for. Grammarly helps to build up your skills as a writer. Eventually, you'll get to the point where you don't even need Grammarly because you'll become accustomed to writing clearly and succinctly and persuasively in any circumstance. You can elevate your writing with 20% off Grammarly Premium by signing up at Grammarly.com slash Nervous Habits. That's 20% off Grammarly Premium at G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash Nervous Habits. Special deal for my listeners, 20% off at Grammarly.com slash Nervous Habits. And now back to the show. Dr. Austin Lim, welcome to Nervous Habits. Hey, Ricky. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have you on here. This is a, a podcast that's deeply rooted in psychology and neuroscience. So anytime we can have an expert in the field like yourself, it's an honor and, and a treat for me and my listeners. So you can see here, Austin, that I'm, I'm taking a sip of, uh, of coffee as I do in every episode. This is my third of the day. So I might as well ask, since you're a neuroscience expert, what, what is this caffeine doing to my brain right now? Well, uh, coffee is one of my personal favorite drugs, and it's probably, it is 
by far and above beyond the, the most widely used psychoactive substance across the world. Um, basically what it's doing is it's altering with the, the normal neurotransmitter systems that we're using in our bodies. So adenosine is usually one of the signals that makes us sleepier and caffeine blocks that. So it keeps us awake, keeps us alert and keeps us happy. So why is it that, that for me, it takes three cups of coffee for that adenosine to be blocked and, and keep me from being drowsy. Whereas for my friends, they can have a sip of coffee and be, you know, and, and be jittery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm a relatively new coffee user, to be honest. I did most of my grad school and my postdoc free, largely free of influence from caffeine, and it's only recently when I started using it. Um, but chronic caffeine users re relatively quickly develop a tolerance to it, and, and they actually have, the body really likes to stay at some neutral level, the whole idea of homeostasis, and the body counteracts the blockage of the adenosine by increasing the receptors. And so most likely you've experienced some kind of withdrawal syndrome when you don't have caffeine. Yeah, uh, that, that, I think that sounds right. Um, but I, I guess, you know, so, so I, I guess the best place to start our, our conversation, um, Austin, is, is, you know, talking about the state of, of mental health for a moment, because there is, folks may not know, but there's actually a second pandemic spreading through the world right now. And it's a silent one. And it's, it's the pandemic having to do with mental health. Uh, hundreds of millions of people have been struggling with depression, anxiety, and mood disorders for the first time. So can you sort of explain on a fundamental level, Austin, what's happening in the brains of these people with these disorders during the pandemic? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And I wish I had the answer for that. Um, it is a very, it's a lot more complex than I think we are currently equipped to understand, um, especially with anxiety. So there's a lot of research that suggests that anxiety is one of those evolutionarily ancient preserved systems. And in our much, much more peaceful world that we live in today than our ancient pre-human ancestors were, you know, constantly fighting and always trying to, to be aware of their surroundings constantly. We live in a really safe time in comparison. And so one of the really interesting theories about the evolution of anxiety is that we are using uh, a more... I guess, less dangerous stimuli to trigger those anxious responses that our body naturally wants to have happen. And so because our world is relatively safe in comparison, we find things instead of being attacked by a bear that kind of drives up our survival mechanisms, we're, you know, worried about how we sound on a podcast, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> Or even, or even maybe not getting a text message back from, from your crush would induce the same sort of uh, sympathetic nervous system activation that you'd get from a predator in prehistoric times or from the potential loss of a food supply. And, and because it's one, of, it's one of those things that's deeply embedded in our evolutionary history, it's kind of difficult to treat it, right? The older systems have a lot of redundancies so the idea is that if one of these survival mechanisms fails, at least you've got backup survival mechanisms in place. And if anxiety is one of those ancient uh, uh, sort of reactions, it might be difficult to, to, to figure out how to deal with it. And I wonder, Austin, you know, to what degree when the pandemic ends inevitably, whether it's this year or next year, 
the brain circuitry of these people that, that are grappling with anxiety, as you mentioned, and, and mood disorders will be fundamentally altered sort of, I don't want to say permanently, but whether this, this, you know, short term um, change to the, the neurotransmitters we've been talking about, whether that will remain after the pandemic ends. Mm -hmm. Sort of the what's the the long term consequences? Exact exactly. What's really interesting is that we often think about permanent changes to the brain, and the most easiest way to think about it is in the context of some exogenous chemical, right? We think about drugs, for instance, permanently changing the activity of or the different shapes of different neurons within the brain, um, but you don't even need something as robust as that. So every time we learn a new piece of information, right? When we learn something new, we think that that information is stored somewhere across different circuits, different networks, or different shapes of cells throughout the brain. Um, and so very, very subtle things such as uh, sort of behaviors related to depression for instance, um, long-term grievances or long-term uh, grieving or behaviors associated with, you know, anxiety type things, those can probably rewire the brain and it can change them in, in very long-term ways. You know, the idea of plasticity is the everyone's favorite buzzword in neuroscience. The idea that our circuits are capable of changing, just like a plastic surgeon would change someone's appearance. I think that it's, it's hard to predict what is going to be uh, long-term and, and what's not going to be long-term um, just because people are so different, right? Everyone's a little bit weirder than everyone else. And so some people are more able to handle, you know, something that might trigger a full-on depression event in someone else. Um, some people have different thresholds for where an anxiety-provoking stimulus might take place, for instance. Mm. Um, and it's, it, unfortunately, I don't have a great answer for that. But, you know, it's something that people are still working on. And I wonder, sort of along the lines of what you're saying, it, it also depends on not just the environmental conditions, but genetics as well. Like, say someone has a familial predisposition to, um, you know, a chemical imbalance of serotonin or something like that. And for the first time in their life, they're dealing with seasonal defective disorder, affective disorder, or some sort of mood, um, you know, instability as a result of the pandemic, maybe they're more likely to sort of continue to, to um, struggle with that after the pandemic ends, whereas someone who doesn't have this in their, in their heredity, you know, is better able to cope with the adversity. I, I don't know if that's a factor as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. So all of these sort of complex psychiatric conditions are influenced both by genetics and by, uh, by the environment. And it's, it's really hard to tell which is a stronger influence, um, especially with, with these uh, little bit more difficult ones. Um, but just as you mentioned, there are different changes that we can see across, uh, for instance, the signaling systems. So serotonin levels, uh, dopamine production, uh, the receptors, for those signals. So there's kind of a lot of different balancing mechanisms on a biological level that could influence um, a person's responses. 
Absolutely. And, and as a result of this avalanche of mental health issues, people are getting creative with treatment options. I read uh, the other day about color therapy, which is exposing people to a spectrum of colors to treat depression. There's dolphin therapy, if you've heard of that, uh, mainly for children with autism. So besides the drug treatments that we're going to talk about today, have you heard of any sort of like innovative uh, therapy options for, for people with these issues? Uh, as far as color therapy, that's related to exposing them to different wavelengths of light, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. um, so I think one of the things that that might be really, really helpful for mostly the blue shifted wavelengths of light. So the bluers and the, the whites and, and purples and or, uh, um, on, on that uh, spectrum. Um, I think those are really good for rebalancing people's circadian related issues when it comes mm. to sleep. So we're sensitive to blue light more than red light. Um, and if there's anyone else like me who stays up really late on their computer, they might yep. <laughs> may have a hard time falling asleep sometimes. And it's because our brains are sort of tricked into thinking that it's still daytime. But then the minute you go camping, for instance, and you're no longer exposed to those blue wavelengths of light and you're just looking at purely red light that comes from the fires, uh, you feel really sleepy and you look at your clock and it's only nine o'clock, right? I don't know if anyone else has experienced that too. Oh, but, definitely. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people are emphatically nodding right now. Like everyone, Austin, everyone checks these, checks their phone, scrolls through Reddit or Instagram or Twitter as they're dozing off. And um, I wonder, I mean, we're talking about th color therapy for depression, but to your point, I wonder maybe should color therapy be applicable to everyone, regardless of, of mental health condition, just to, like you say, restabilize um, your circadian rhythm. Mm -hmm. Those, uh, the red light filters that some people have on their cell phones, uh, they probably cut back on, on the blue wavelengths. Um, and I forgot to tie this back in with the depression thing. Um, sleep related issues are uh, sometimes leading to, it's for one, definitely part of a, a negative feedback loop associated with anxiety. Right. If you can't fall asleep, you get more anxious because you're thinking about how you need to fall asleep. And then the anxiety is driving up your sympathetic drive. And so your heart rate is a little bit higher. Your blood pressure is a little bit higher. And that makes it even more difficult to fall asleep. So uh, regulating circadian stuff is really helpful for um, for anxiety, especially if it induces insomnia. Um, as far as depression, there might also be some some links. I haven't read too much. I haven't learned too much about um, how color therapy plays a role with uh, depression. Um, but I, I feel like sleep is always the thing that probably causes a lot of other issues, rather the lack of sleep. You know, a lot of mm -hmm. people are chronically sleep deprived. We are, we're just finding more things to do. And the first thing we cut out is our sleep. Like, oh, I'll just, you know, I'll just stay up till two to do this thing because I need to do it. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I, I couldn't agree with that more. We had a sleep specialist on um, a couple months ago, Austin, but you think about sort of take a macro uh, 10,000 foot look at, at, at humankind. You think about the inventions that have shaped us um, physiologically. And as much as the computer and, and, you know, the invention of the internet has, has had just incredible impact um, I'm not sure that anything is going to rival the invention of the light bulb and electricity, just because this is exactly what you said with the fire and going outside, you know, 200 years ago, people would stay awake doing work, you know, writing, working on the farms, whatever. 
until the sunset and then they'd go to sleep. But now people like you and I, I go to sleep, you know, three, four in the morning and wake up five, six hours later. And it's all because of electricity. So that has to have some sort of an impact on the brain. Yeah. Uh, it's part of the circadian disruptions. I think it's just another big issue. Uh, I don't mean to keep bringing this back to sleep related stuff, but I've just it's been important. thinking about it. Yeah. We're all sleep deprived to some degree. Um, and, and I think trying to get that back in line is, is just going to be helpful for mental health overall. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And, and, um, and, and I think, I think that's, that's an incredibly cogent point because people who struggle with depression also uh, likely have comorbidities with insomnia and, and sleep apnea, what have you. Um, so I first learned about your work, Austin, when I, I was reading some of your articles in Scientific American on uh, specifically psychedelics and how they work on the brain. So for those who don't have a neurology background, uh, sort of, you know, like the, the Reddit thing, explain like I'm five, how would you explain to a child how psychedelics work on the brain? Yeah, so psychedelics act at the brain by uh, mimicking our body's natural neurotransmitter serotonin. So wherever serotonin is kind of one of the more complicated neurotransmitter signals, um, but what are sort of classic psychedelics, or at least as they've been called since the 60s, the hallucinogens, they tend to have chemical structures very, very similar to serotonin. And as a result, they activate uh, one particular population of serotonin receptors. And when they do, it causes the, the bodies to experience some unusual stuff, right? We often think about the perceptual changes. So we might see colors that are kind of drifting, or we might see walls that are kind of breathing and things like that. I'm sort of making the distinction between the serotonergic psychedelics versus other classes of psychedelics. Um, technically, psychedelic refers to uh, opening the mind. Um, and I think it's a more accurate name as opposed to hallucinogens, as they've been called before. Hallucinogens means uh, creates hallucinations. And mm -hmm. most classic uh, psychedelics don't actually create genuine hallucinations. We're not seeing stuff where there's nothing there. You're seeing a sort of distortion of what actually is there. I was just going to say, so, so when you talk about the different classes, can you be more specific? I know the article mentions LSD, magic mushrooms, and DMT. Which, which classes do these fall into? Yeah, sure. Uh, so these are our sort of classic serotonergic psychedelics. Um, all three of them have chemical structures similar to serotonin. And uh, the other two major classes that I often think about with psychedelics would be our kind of sympathomimetic psychedelics. So MDMA or ecstasy um, is one that has some psychedelic effects. It does have some applications for therapy. Um, but it looks different from serotonin and it acts on a different population of, of signaling systems. And the other one would be our dissociative uh, psychedelics. So ketamine um, is our, one of our dissociative anesthetics. And that one, again, it also looks a little bit different and it has a different target in the brain rather than serotonin. So I want to make, make, you know, this clear to the listeners, these, these drugs are all illegal, right? It's a, in most cases, it's, it's a, a federal offense to, to possess, to, to traffic in, in the, in these drugs. And, and the purpose of this conversation is not to encourage people to experiment with these substances, but it is to sort of consider, um, alternative uses, which we'll speak about in a moment for some of these, some of these drugs, but 
Austin, I, I do want to sort of, um, you know, help listeners understand how exactly the effects of these drugs differ. So, uh, you know, if you if someone takes, uh, let's say, LSD, for example, or, or acid, what exactly does that do to the brain, both short term and long and long term? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So actually, just to kind of back up a little bit to uh, the point about the legal status of these drugs. Uh, ketamine was actually approved by the FDA in 2019 for use in depression. Mm. So there's a preparation of ketamine called Spravato, um, and it's a nasal spray. That's the current preparation. Uh, I think one of the most interesting things about ketamine is its sort of winding history as a chemical. Um, The first people who developed it created it as a veterinary anesthetic. So it was to put down horses temporarily when you, so you were, you could do surgery on them. And then over time, that legal use of it sort of got diverted into what people most often think about ketamine or special K as a recreational club drug. Um, And it was only, it was, uh, there was some research that led up uh, to 2019 suggesting that it's useful in a handful of cases of uh, treatment resistant depression. And, and that's why the FDA went ahead and, and approved it. That is to say the legal status of everything else are considered schedule one drugs. So they are federally, federally regulated and they do carry penalties with, with uh, uh, use and their distribution and sell, selling and manufacturing and, and so on. That, that's really, okay. So it's really interesting. I, I had no idea that, uh, that ketamine was, was legalized in 2019. And that's, I think the great thing about conversations like this is I, I'm sure listeners also didn't know <laughs> that uh, ketamine was approved for use in, um, in certain depression, uh, circumstances. So, so, uh, take a drug Austin, like, like, uh, like LSD, for example, sort of break down like on a neurological level, how that impacts the brain when it's consumed, maybe like, you know, 30 seconds in, a minute in, a couple minutes in, what does it do? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, so what LSD is going to be doing, for instance, it's going to activate the serotonin 2A receptors. That's the particular category of those receptors um, that most of the serotonergic psychedelics act on. And these receptors are expressed in a lot of different brain areas. So serotonin is one of the more kind of uh, spread out neurotransmitter signals. Um, and when it does influence the brain, it causes uh, sort of unusual cell activity in, in different populations. It probably explains why we are getting these visual, uh, visual experiences. Um, with LSD, we tend to think of having three major phases. Um, first is a sort of physiological or somatic effect where it's just kind of making the body physically do different things. So it causes little vasodilation. Um, this is why sometimes people feel a little warmer. Um, and then it moves to a more of a, uh, psych, uh, uh, perceptual effects where it's starting to mess with people's, uh, visual, sometimes auditory perception. Um, and this is when we get the, the drifting colors and the breathing walls and stuff like that. And then finally, it has this psychic effect where it is starting to really influence people's, um, uh, sort of deeper consciousness states, I suppose. So this is often the phase where people are starting to experience that they are um, feeling a connection with their God, with nature, with earth, with a higher power. 
Um, they may experience the dissociative effect where they feel like they are outside of their body or, um, and, and this is the phase where we think that the psychotherapy applications are most, uh, are, are going to be the most um, useful. The major difference between uh, what we think about LSD, uh, psilocybin, which is the chemical that's found in the magic mushrooms and, and DMT uh, is, is mostly time course. Um, there's a few minor subjective effects where people feel a little bit different across the board, but um, we think about DMT as being the quickest onset, the most rapid effect, and the quickest dissipation. Uh, psilocybin somewhere in between LSD is the longest time course. So we think that usually for, um, for psychotherapy applications, most likely psilocybin or DMT rather than, uh, than LSD. Okay, so this is all this is all super useful uh, context, Austin, and and, and we're going to talk about psychotherapy uh, applications in a moment. I, I sort of want you to think like a policymaker for a minute, because for a lot of people listening, much like myself, like I don't know a lot about these these substances. Um, I, I know a little bit about the brain, but I haven't you know learned about uh, psychedelics and I haven't experimented with them myself. So. I mean, I mean, everything you're saying sounds sounds pretty good, right? Like, like it, you know, vasodilation and, and uh, visual perception shifts and and opening the the psychic uh, element of it. So, why, again, thinking like a policymaker, why are these drugs illegal? What's what's the danger? Is there is it the addictive potential, or is it just we don't really know what the long term implications of LSD and DMT are? Yeah, that's a really good question. Why were they put into Schedule 1? So all of that stuff was passed, or uh, they were made officially illegal in the U.S., I think in 67. Um, and it was all sort of formally codified under the Controlled Substances Act, which was passed in 1970. Um, and that's the one that said that each of these, they went through this huge list of drugs and new drugs are being added to it uh, regularly. And they say, where does this belong? Schedule one, which has strict penalties or schedule five, which has less strict penalties. So, um, so some of the schedule one substances include these, uh, these compounds that we've been talking about. Some of the schedule five stuff would be like anti-epileptic medications, uh, stuff like that. So, you know, you can get a tiny bit of a high from them, but they're mostly used in the clinic. And in 1970, what was done was in theory, there were three different uh, axes that every drug was evaluated on. How dangerous is it? If it's more dangerous, it should be a schedule one. How addictive, or I think the language they use is what is their abuse potential? If it has high abuse potential, then it should be schedule one. Low abuse potential is schedule five. And then the third axis is how much application does it have in a clinical use? And if it has no clinical applications, it should be schedule one. If it's predominantly used in the clinic, um, then it's Schedule 5. If you're sort of looking at these chemicals objectively, uh, independent of their legal status, which I think is something that policymakers are overdue for, right? It's 50 years old. This act has been around for a long time. Most of the evidence suggests that these uh, psychedelics don't belong in Schedule 1. Uh, as far as the three axes go, their safety profile, they're remarkably safe. There hasn't been, uh, there aren't acute drug effects. So one of the main, or I think one of the most interesting case studies was a woman who took 
something like a 500 times dose larger of LSD than normal. Um, she threw up, she blacked out for a bit, and she was fine 24 hours later with no major effects other than she was able to decrease her opioid use for painkillers, but that's a separate thing completely. If we think about what it means to be able to take a 500 times dose of something, um, imagine if you're drinking just 10 times the normal dose of alcohol that you would normally want to take, how terrible might you feel or 20 times, right? If one beer will give you a little buzz, 20 beers might make you black out, might end you up in a hospital. With LSD, we're talking about a woman who took a 500 times dose with no long lasting side effects um, and her health was not uh, put into danger. So I think on the, the safety axis alone, it doesn't belong uh, in schedule one. Uh, as far as abuse potential go, I think it's very low. People that uh, people generally don't want to take LSD more than, you know, it's, it's not something you want to do regularly. It's exhausting. <laughs> and so at, at some point, it's just like, I don't, I, I just don't need a lot of this compound um, anymore. So, so you're saying in this one example that this woman took a 500 times dose of LSD and no long lasting impact. Um, I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little skeptical of that just because I'm thinking of people who take, say for instance, you take mushrooms um, once or twice. Uh, my, my very rudimentary understanding is I, I know we talked about plasticity, but taking mushrooms sort of rearrange, like rearranges the hard wiring of the synaptic connections in the brain. So wouldn't there be some sort of long-term permanent impact in terms of how the neurons are communicating? And, and if not, how do we know that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm not, uh, I guess what I am, am not saying is that there are no long-term changes. So there are, just as you had said, there are absolutely long-term changes. And so um, one example is a sort of a condition called HPPD, which is, I forget what it stands for, hallucinogen, perceptual, perseverative disorder, something to that degree. Um, and it's people who, they have a long history of psychedelic use. Even when they're no longer on the drug, they experience um, some visual perceptual stuff. So they might develop uh, a syndrome called Alice in Wonderland syndrome, where sometimes stuff looks really big for no reason, or other stuff just looks really small for no reason. Wow. Um, which is really kind of scary, um, especially if it's something that uh, that you don't want to be really big for whatever reason. And so um, that stuff does exist, right? There are these long-term changes that, that can uh, that can cause um, people to have a negative effect to it. What I think I'm most trying to say is that if we compare that as being one of the more severe side effects of long-term psychedelic use with long-term tobacco use, um, we're looking at uh, people whose average lifespans are decreased by about eight years because they are addicted to nicotine. We think mm -hmm. about addiction to ethanol, right? So chronic alcoholics have severe health problems. They have a severe negative impact on their uh, immediate community and their surrounding communities because um, of intoxicated driving, um, you know, things like that. And I think that what is, I think, better from a policy perspective is that if we are able to better understand the effects of the psychedelics, then we're better able to more accurately 
put it in the schedule where it belongs. I think one of the issues, one of the consequences from the Controlled Substances Act was that after 1970, it didn't really change the illicit use of the psychedelics, but it dramatically changed the medicinal studying of the psychedelics. The act puts in a bunch of uh, production quotas. So the companies that were making LSD, which is marketed, which is called Delicid um, as, as a medical preparation, um, they were not allowed to produce as much of the compound. And so they have to, it costs them a lot of money at this point. And that cost then gets transferred onto the scientists and the researchers who care about trying to find the medicinal applications. Um, and, and to kind of go back to the toxicity thing, uh, I think it's always, it's always an interesting thing to, to kind of, um, all those like very, very rare cases of people who overdosed on water. Um, we think about those weird uh, uh, fraternity hazing rituals where they just, they're not allowed to drink alcohol, so they just drink a bunch of water and it kills people every so often. Um, the toxicity thing is everything is toxic to some degree. Austin, I, I, I want to talk about the side effects for a moment because uh, you mentioned something that was really interesting, the Alice in Wonderland syndrome. I've also read, and a lot of this is anecdotal, but you hear about how when people take hallucinogens like, like LSD, um, sometimes they hear voices, right? And I've heard, again, this is anecdotal, but I've read about people who develop something akin to schizophrenia, where for the first time in their life, they take acid, they hear voices, and then even when they come down from the drug, they continue to hear voices. So, I mean, what's, what's going on in situations like that? It's, it's kind of hard to say. Um, one, some of the earlier studies using LSD that were NIH funded, all of these grants in like the early 60s and uh, late 50s and early 60s, some of them were curious at trying to look at how LSD could be used for people with schizophrenia. That was in the 60s. Our technology wasn't that great. I have a feeling initially that it's not going to be an effective therapy for schizophrenia. Um, from what I have seen based on the occasional psychosis-like side effects that, that can result from it, based on the anecdotes that you provided, I don't know if it has much of a future for, for uh, therapy with schizophrenia. The other component is a lot of times, at least this is, uh, this is kind of a consequence of the Controlled Substances Act. And it's that the LSD that people are getting oftentimes isn't really entirely LSD. Um, it's probably cut with all kinds of other things. Um, and it's kind of hard to say on from a street level what you're getting with, with a dose of LSD because the pure manufacturing companies are having a hard time uh, 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 legally dealing with sort of the bureaucratic stuff to, to produce the legitimate LSD. And that's one of the arguments. I mean, you look at the, the parallel with, with cannabis, right? Like one of the arguments for legalizing, decriminalizing marijuana is you have, you know, better able to regulate it and, and less um, chance that it's cut with something, uh, you know, criminal as well. Um, and, and then with, with respect to LSD, you mentioned in the art, I think it was in the article, uh, how certain cities in the U.S., Denver being one of them, has decriminalized LSD for use, not for schizophrenia, but, but for depression. So what's, what's the goal there? Yeah, so uh, I know there are a few states that uh, that are uh, there's various little bits of legislation throughout the the uh, U.S. on a state 
or local level um, that's more related to, to decriminalization or just straight up legalization. Um, and part of it is to allow for easier, uh, easier research um, to let this stuff move forward. Um, as far as its effects on depression, the one thing that we have seen is uh, one of the networks that we see in our brain that is most affected by psychedelics is a thing called the default mode network. And the default mode network is a series, it's sort of this vague term to describe a series of brain structures. And when they are active, it's basically kind of giving us a sense of who we are. One of the psychic effects that we see with our psychedelics is uh, what's described as ego dissolution, kind of breaking apart the, the idea of who we are or, or what, our, what is our basic default driving trains of thought. Um, in people with depression, one of the things that uh, we think is happening is that they are sort of caught in a negative cycle of telling themselves the same depressive thoughts sort of over and over again, right? So they might think to themselves, I'm not worthy of other people's time. Um, I'm not deserving of my family's love or you know these negative depressive thoughts. And they continue to act on the basis of those thoughts. And so every time this cycle of negative thought repeats itself, we're sort of digging that default mode network even harder. And eventually that kind of becomes a part of that person's identity that I'm just Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh or whatever, right? <laughs> this is just who I am at this point. And when a person is on a psychedelic and they experience this ego dissolution, it's breaking apart their sort of negative train of thought. It's sort of jumping them out of the tracks, basically. And, and that's one of the big theories behind uh, their function in the clinic. So I know earlier we were talking about LSD specifically, but if you remember the three steps, the vasodilation, the, the perception, and then lastly, you said the psychic influence, it sounds to me like what you're describing with this ego dissolution is that when someone's in the third step, like a psychic um, influence, they're, they are more impressionable. I don't know if that's the word to influence. It's almost, almost like a can I'm imagining like hypnosis where when someone's in that state, that that's when you can actually do the work of, of piecing back together uh, anything that's, that's at the root of their depression. I, I don't know if that, if that analog makes sense. Um, yeah, I think to some degree, at, at least that's what, um, so the CIA funded a bunch of really weird studies called Project MKUltra in the 70s and 80s, I believe, maybe just in the 70s, where they were planning to use LSD as a sort of chemical warfare agent, um, really kind of weird stuff. Um, the idea was you just load it up in a plane, you drive over, you fly over a place that you want to change their minds, and then you just unleash LSD from the sky on everyone. Um, it's There's a bunch of weird, <laughs> weird stuff that was going on <laughs> back in those days. But uh, I think I think that's what the, the general idea is, right? During that psychic phase, um, you're able to kind of uh, uh, cause someone to, to jump out of their default mode network. You kind of shut it down with the psychedelics and you're letting other circuits, maybe the, the healthier, happier circuits that are built in there somewhere else. Um, and, and you let those sort of take over. 
you know, as someone who struggles with anxiety, generalized anxiety and with OCD, my concern, and this is probably a concern that lots of other people will share, is if you do, if you are under the influence of these psychedelics and, and you are sort of open to, as you're suggesting, during the psychic state being, you know, influenced in that way, there might be, you know, there is the likelihood of like a, something akin to a bad, a bad trip, right? Where, where like panic sets in and then you just go into full-blown sympathetic activation, like fight or flight. So I, I'm wondering chemically, you know, should we, should we like uh, have some sort of uh, other substance in the drug that would counteract that effect? Or would you just say for people like me with severe anxiety, just don't even try this altogether? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. What else? So what else could be done uh, chemically in order to make it less scary or less intimidating? Yeah, so a lot of people, uh, not a lot of people, but some people report after doing their dosing in, in these clinical trials, they report that during the experience, while they are there, sometimes they're having a really bad time. But when they emerge on the other side, after the, the sort of talk therapy that is usually accompanying the uh, medical, uh, the, the application of the drug, usually, at least for you know, a handful of people, they, it seems like they do improve. Um, and so it's, it's sort of tough, right? They get into this trough initially where it's not great and then they sort of emerge um, better on the other side. Um, I think, so going back to answering your question more specifically, the thing is with anxiety specifically, anxiety and depression have a lot of stuff in common. So a lot of times you can, you can share whatever personal anecdotes if you would like to at any point. There's still that same idea of being in this default mode network for people with severe anxiety. They're still thinking about, oh, at any moment, all of this could be really bad. Right? And that ends up being one of those perseverative thoughts sometimes where they're thinking about, um, you know, they, it might drive their actions to behave in a certain way in order to minimize those chances, right? And so it's, it kind of ends up being, uh, and then when you overthink stuff and then sometimes it makes it worse. And I don't know, there, there could be some sort of uh, cyclic pattern there. And, and that's why they think that anxiety may also be uh, affected by disrupting the default mode network like you would with a psychedelic. It's interesting. You mentioned a moment ago that this would be supplemented with talk therapy. I'm actually, you know, I, I came into this, into this conversation a, a little bit um, skeptical, but, but you're, start, you're starting to sell me on this because I'm thinking in a controlled environment, right? You're not going home and doing, you know, these psychedelics on your own. In a controlled environment, if you're taking it with a medical practitioner and it's supplemented by therapy, that sounds like it's, it, you know, it might be more impactful. Yeah, yeah. I think I should have started off with that point. <laughs> um, they don't, uh, with at least the clinical trials that they've done so far, pretty much all of the, uh, the majority of the ones that I can think of um, do come with talk therapy. And it's part of the part of the process as well. So instead of going to a Walgreens to get your magic mushrooms, it'll be administered uh, very carefully um, in a very controlled environment. Uh, for a short window, controlled dosings uh, with people, you know, loved ones nearby and, and everything to make the, the experience as, as sort of less threatening as possible. 
I'm imagining walking into walking into CVS or Walgreens, and the uh, the pharmacist has the white coat on, just hands you hands you a little mushroom, <laughs> and, and tell, t- tells you don't take it all at once. Um, that's a, <laughs> a really funny visual. Uh, so, so we mentioned LSD and decriminalization in the UK. You also mentioned this in the article. Uh, researchers are experimenting with DMT for treating depression. So, is that if you had to sort of weigh the um, potential efficacies, do you think that's going to be more or less effective than LSD? Think about DMT. It's hard to say. Um, what we do know is that DMT has basically a much shorter time course, which means that it becomes uh, easier to get a, uh, a accompanying talk therapy to go with it. Um, we think about DMT's effects less than an hour. So you get both the somatic, the physiological effects and uh, the psychic stuff um, in a really short time span. And so uh, it, it ends up sort of being a compressed window. With LSD, you're talking sometimes eight hours, which is just, mm. you know, once you leave the clinic, it could just be really uh, uncomfortable, <laughs> if anything. So uh, I think with that, um, there might be a little bit more benefit with DMT. So traditionally, um, SSRIs are used to treat the chemical imbalance in um, in anxiety and depression. So for folks who who aren't you know list, aren't familiar uh, when you don't have enough serotonin in the synapse because it's being reuptaken, SSRIs, as the name indicates, inhibits the process. So Austin, why you know if you're comparing treatment options, let's say 20 years into the future, uh, psychedelics are being used to treat depression and anxiety. Would you say that in this hypothetical future, it would be preferable to SSRIs or would it even be potentially more effective than SSRIs in treating depression and anxiety? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So um, our sort of prototypical SSRIs that we might think about, so uh, we're thinking about Zoloft or... Prozac, Lexapro. Prozac. Yeah, yeah, th- th- those are the ones that, <laughs> that I was trying to think of. Um, yeah, just as you suggest, what they're acting to do is increase the serotonin at the synapse. Um, they have this sort of unusual mechanism though, because when a person takes one of these medications, the SSRI goes into effect within hours, but sometimes people on SSRIs don't see a reversal of their depression until weeks of treatment. Um, Mm. And so there's this, this is one of the big remaining questions. Why is it that the pharmacological time course for a dose of that drug doesn't line up with the therapeutic benefit? It probably has to do with plasticity again. Maybe if you're getting enough, if you're getting, once you get that elevated serotonin levels, the brain's rewiring in some ways, question mark. We don't fully understand that yet. Um, And then maybe that's what's leading to the reversal of people's symptoms. Um, One of the trickiest things about depression is that even in placebo controlled studies, the placebo is really effective for a lot of people. The placebo effect in general is, you know, it's one of the most reliable things you'll see across all of biology, unfortunately. We're seeing something like uh, 30, 40% of people who improve with the placebo alone. And it's better with the SSRIs. So the, the rates are higher. Um, there's there's uh, the, the um, they're clinically better, right? Statistically significantly better. Um, and you get more relapses with people on placebo. So it does show that the antidepressants are working um, and are having some kind of effect. It's just a small popular, not a small, but it's like a third of people who don't respond to our traditional antidepressants. 
mm. um, people with major depressive disorder who are who have been on SSRIs for several uh, months and they're still not seeing a, a change in their symptom. Um, because the first line therapies are effective, uh, I think it's best to, to, well, it's really kind of hard to say what is going to be better um, at this point. So the thing about a lot of psychedelic studies is that it's usually just two or three doses, which is hmm. kind of amazing. Um, with SSRIs, you're taking a pill daily for weeks and what, it's for, for years for, I mean, there are people who start taking SSRIs when they're 16 and they take them up until they're 70 years old. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 You're totally right. Uh, and, and sometimes you have to switch between antidepressants. So sometimes if your classic SSRIs don't work, you'll switch to these monoamine uh, inhibitors, which are another class of antidepressants. And so you're kind of introducing a lot of different chemicals, which do different things um, to the body. But with the psychedelics, we think about them as being just a couple doses, just enough to fix the brain. And it's no longer a chemical, it's no longer sort of an exogenous chemical that's keeping uh, people at, at whatever level they're, they're supposed to be. It's you just change it once and then it seems to work for some people. So I want to make sure I'm understanding you correctly. So depression, anxiety ca are caused by a, a dearth of, of, uh, of serotonin, right? There's, there's not enough serotonin um, in the synapse because it's being reuptaken. So you're saying that potentially taking two or three doses of a psychedelic could permanently long-term stabilize this dearth of serotonin as opposed to taking SSRIs every day for years. Yeah, so long-term, sorry. So exposure after, after a single exposure, what if you follow up their uh, experiences later, a lot of times they don't need uh, multiple dosings. Wow, that's incredible. We spoke earlier about uh, the addictive potential of these drugs, and, and you mentioned that taking LSD once is like enough. You're not worried about addiction, but I'm curious about withdrawal implications because if you take SSRIs every day and then you stop for like a week, you experience um, SS, SSRI uh, uh, selective serotonin. It's like discontinuation syndrome. It's known as brain zaps, right? Because because you're uh, I don't know what, what the neurological term is it, it, for it, but your brain has become accustomed to the reuptake inhibitors. So I'm wondering, is there a possibility for something like withdrawal from psychedelic use? Um, so other than HPPD, which is usually for very, very heavy users, those are usually the ones who end up with, uh, with HPPD. Um, because the dosing regimen is so low, I generally don't tend to think that that's going to be uh, too big of an issue with uh, with withdrawal. So I want to make sure you know we covered all of our bases in terms of the possible drugs here. We've talked we've talked about DMT, we've talked about LSD, ketamine, um, mushrooms. You you sort of briefly alluded to MDMA. Just to clarify, MDMA is not being considered for use in in depression. Um, no, they uh, it's mostly. It's at least it's preclinical applications right now. It's looking at MDMA for PTSD more than more than depression. I think there might be some studies. There's probably studies looking at it in depression as well. But um, usually, when I'm thinking about MDMA, it's usually for PTSD. But there, there wouldn't be a t uh, would, would there not be addictive potential for that? Like people who take uh, ecstasy and they're so used to the high that, that I guess that's dopamine, right. That comes from MDMA that they're, you know, they don't want to come back down. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. So MDMA is a, a, a dopamine signaling enhancer, um, which could have, which does improve or does increase its uh, addictive properties. Um, the sort of kind of thing to, to, to evaluate is how much addiction abuse potential there is with MDMA compared to other stuff. So MDMA is also a schedule one drug. If it demonstrates any clinical application whatsoever, it shouldn't be uh, schedule one. So by the way, cocaine is a schedule two substance. It's easier to study the pharmacological properties of cocaine than it is to study cannabis, LSD, psilocybin, or MDMA, just That's because insane. it's schedule two. And the, they wouldn't they wouldn't consider cocaine for any of this, right? <laughs> no, uh, probably not. All I mean, no, I don't. I don't think so. The problem is that it has ridiculously high abuse potential um, and mm -hmm. ramping, escalating use. Um, in the clinic with uh, cocaine, the only reason it's scheduled to is they use it in facial surgery. It's a very, very, very niche purpose for what it's used for. It's a vasoconstrictor, so it decreases bleeding if you're cutting into something here. And uh, vasoconstrictor which means less blood. And it also dilates the pupils, which sometimes you want for various facial related things. So super niche medical purpose. Um, they're not using it therapeutically for anything right now. Although if you look back to the, you know, the thirties and forties, Freud was a big cocaine fan. Um, really? I did not know that. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, cocaine is also another one of those chemicals that has a really weird history, right? So after the Civil War, um, this guy, uh, Pemberton, uh, was a Civil War vet and he was on opioids. He was addicted to opioids and he invented a drink with cocaine in it in order to get himself and other people off of the opioid addictions. That was Coca-Cola. Huh. Look at that. I, that, that, I did, that I did know about mm -hmm. and about how I feel like they've changed the formula of Coke to make it less addictive because of regulatory pressure. Uh, yeah, yeah. So after uh, after cocaine became regulated more closely, um, they they had to they had to take it out of the, the drink. So now it's just highly addictive uh, fructose corn syrup. <laughs> I was I was just gonna say it's still it's still probably as addictive, if not more addictive, mm -hmm. of, of the cocaine version. Um, so you know, I want you to put on put on your uh, prognosticator hat here. Um, we'll call you instead of Nostradamus, Ostradamus. How realistic do you think, crystal ball, 10, 15 years in the future, this will become a reality where people can go to their doctors or go to their pharmacies and try a psychedelic to treat anxiety or depression? Or is it something that might take another 15, 20 years? What's your best guess? Yeah, um, I think part of it is a delay based on public perception. So I, uh, I have some friends uh, who are very smart people, but still have sort of a, what was taught to them in dare class about what psychedelics do, as opposed to here is the medical literature, here's the scientific literature about what psychedelics actually do. And, and these very smart people are still in that sort of all drugs are bad camp, as opposed to all things are just chemicals and there's no good or bad with chemicals 
Some have applications here, others have applications elsewhere, and, and, and so on. So I think until public perception really, really shifts, it's starting to in a few places, the like Denver, um, Washington or Oregon, Washington, one yeah. of the Washington, all of yeah. them, all of the, all of the Northwest states. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've, uh, they've already made some steps towards decriminalization. And I think if the minute it starts shifting that is the same time when researchers are better able to do more work in the lab. You get more work in the lab, you get more uh, uh, these publications, you get the word out there. It's probably going to take a little bit of time. So 15 years is my conservative estimation. Okay. 15, 50. So it's 2021. So uh, hopefully Spotify and Apple are still around in 15 years. Listen to this episode in 2036 and see if, <laughs> and see if you can go to your, go to your doctor and, um, and order a, <laughs> order mm -hmm. a magic mushroom. Yeah. Um, and, th and then call me back because I should make some, some other wagers about other industries <laughs> that are going to blow up. <laughs> That's hilarious. So, uh, the last thing I want to talk to you about very briefly, round out our conversation, is is just general brain health. For those who don't suffer from mental health disorders, there's a lot of products out there that claim that they can be brain health supplements, right? Like they can speed up your cognition, they can slow down the uh, you know neurological aging process, um, they can increase attention. Are any of these claims true? Are there any supplements that you can think of that might actually be able to accomplish this? They're pretty much not going to harm you unless they're interacting with some other medications that you're on. Um, they are going to harm your finances. They're going to harm your wallet. Some of them can be expensive. They're not physically going to hurt you. Um, best case scenario, most likely they're placebo effects, which is like, you know, 40% of people or 40% of placebos do things. And it depends on the type of the placebo you get. And pills are pretty good up there as far as how effective the placebos are. Most likely it's not gonna hurt you unless it interacts with some drug you're taking. It, it does lead to an interesting point about how we're now starting to develop the tools scientifically in order to study these sort of ancient herbs and ancient medicines that have been around for, for centuries. The best more than anything health advice would be to go back to the ancient Greeks, I think, and just say, do everything in moderation. Sleep as much as you can. <laughs> That's another really great piece of, of medical gem that I can drop here. <laughs> um, I, I read that there are a couple essential minerals, magnesium, zinc, and iron, that uh, play uh, important roles in cognition and healthy aging. Is there any truth to that? Um, yeah, so as far as I know, they're, they're all uh, sort of cofactors that help enzymes do stuff. Um, and, and yeah, you need them, but for the most part, we'll get them from our typical sort of American diet. Um, it's only people who do have various deficiencies in taking up those, uh, those minerals. So they're getting it in their diet, but their bodies are just not picking them up. Um, those are the people who I think uh, would, would benefit from some kind, of, uh, some kind of medical intervention related to that. And we've talked on that note, we've talked a lot about serotonin and dopamine. That's uh, two of the main neurotransmitters. Um, the other neurotransmitters, so like uh, gl glutamate, I think is one, and, and GABA, uh, no reprinephrine, are these, when you talk about supplements, whether it be magnesium or something that you buy online, um, potentially increasing cognition or, or you know, he healthier aging. Are we talking about how it acts on those 
neurotransmitters like GABA or glutamate, or is it serotonin or it's all of them? How, how does it work exactly? Um, it's hard to say. It's probably a little bit of everything. Um, just because we, for instance, magnesium is used in glutamate neurotransmission. Um, magnesium is related to uh, plasticity, for instance. Um, but the thing about it is that uh, with with the bodies, we really like homeostasis. If we're not getting it from our diet, we're going to take it from somewhere else. And so it just means some other parts are going to get a little magnesium poor and other parts will will soak up that magnesium instead. Definitely. I mean, it's, it's just a matter of... Um of, as you said, getting it from your diet, potentially taking a supplement. And it sounds like the, the other stuff is just, is just placebo, um, which, Hey, I, if that works, if that works yeah. for you, then that I mean, works. It's very, very reliable. Listen, Austin, this has been a wonderful conversation. I, I, I'm sure you can tell psychology and, neuro, and neuroscience this is my favorite, favorite conversations to have. I, I could talk about this stuff for hours. <laughs> um, I'm sure that listeners want to know where they can go to, to read your publications, to learn about your research and all of the other work that you do in general. Yeah. So you can find me on the internet at austinlim.com. Um, that's going to be the repository for all of my stuff. So that's where all my scientific publications are. That's where all my uh, communication, sci science communication stuff is. And that's also where you're interested in if you are looking for a free open educational resource. Uh, I'm in the process of writing a neuroscience textbook aimed at college undergrads, but I think it's appropriate for any, uh, you know, people with an interest in biology. Um, if you're just kind of curious to see how the nervous system works, it's about three fourths completed right now. It should be finished by the end of the summer. Um, so you can find me there. And I'm on Twitter, Doc Austin Lim. That is so cool. I'm actually, I, I remind me when that comes out, I'm definitely going to gonna make sure to purchase a copy because I am, I am such a dork. I, Friday night, there's nothing more that I, I'd enjoy than just reading a neuroscience textbook, reminding myself, oh, this is what this part of the neuron does and, and action potentials and stuff like that. Well, here's the great thing about it. It's totally free and it's currently being released sort of piecemeal. So there are several chapters that are already available and it's just available as a PDF. So you can download it and read it at your own leisure. I will definitely, definitely do that. Um, that sounds that sounds terrific. And definitely to all those listening, make sure to check out um, Austin's research and, and his writings and his, his soon to be published textbook. Austin, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much again for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks a bunch, Ricky. Had a good time. There you have it, guys. That was my conversation with Professor of Neuroscience, Dr. Austin Lim. And as soon as the conversation ended, I literally went to pick up a banana um, to get some magnesium for my GABA, my glutamate, right? But I, I do sort of agree with him that in the next 15 years, I can see, I can see there being alternative uh, treatment options for depression and anxiety. Because what we're seeing, I mean, with this pandemic is... You know, it used to be when I was younger, um, and when many of you were listening, if you're Generation X or, or if you're baby boomers, depression and anxiety were either not very common or not very understood, or maybe lots of people had it and they just didn't put a label on it. But nowadays, whatever the reason may be, I think all of us are struggling. All of us know someone who has clinical depression. All of us have experienced something akin to depression. I mean, depression is not binary. It's not you have it or it's not. It exists on a spectrum, right? So... Given that these mental health illnesses have become so prevalent, I think that SSRIs and MAOIs and benzos, I, I think that these are going to be phased out, right? Because 
as we mentioned, to take a drug like Zoloft or Prozac, you're taking it every day for years, as opposed to potentially, right, taking one or two doses of a psychedelic and having, we talked about plasticity, the the hardwiring of your brain um, potentially altered for the long term. It's it's promising. It's not without risk. That's I think that's something that that Austin noted, and I think the more that public perception shifts, the more we can uh, conduct studies and research on these substances and understand them more. Uh, but some people will be open to, to trying this. I, I think I enter the conversation skeptical at this point. I'm more open to it, but still, I, I personally would not, you know, be one of the guinea pigs for these experiments, just given my anxiety and and I can imagine myself being one of the anecdotes that that we mentioned in the podcast where it doesn't go very well and I don't want to develop what did he say HPDD was that it HPPD or any sort of Alice in Wonderland syndrome but I think you know what was most what struck me most about the Scientific American article and about the conversation was just the fact that the pharmaceutical industry and just medicine in general is getting crafty. People are trying new things and and to see if it has efficacy. And who knows? I mean, in 2036 and 15, 20 years, when you listen to this, it might be the case that you can go to your pharmacy and pick up some DMT or or, or (laughs) some uh, magic mushrooms with detailed instructions on how to take it and what the quantity may be. But all that's to say, I really enjoyed my conversation with Austin. Uh, As I said before the episode, I geek out when it comes to psychology and neuroscience. I'm definitely going to check out his textbook and look forward to having more um, conversations like this with other neuroscience experts in the future on the pod. So next week, I will be revisiting one of my other favorite topics, which is dating. I'll be joined by journalist and author of Datanomics, How Dating Became a Lopsided Numbers Game, uh, which was called The Money Ball of Dating, John Berger. We'll be talking about the science and the economics behind dating apps, and why, contrary to what you may believe, dating apps like Hinge or Bumble are not actually in the business of happily ever afters. That's coming up next week on Nervous Habits. Thanks so much for listening, guys. This has been another episode of Nervous Habits Podcast. You can follow the pod on social media, on Instagram at Nervous Habits Podcast, on Twitter at Nervous Habits underscore. You can write to the pod via email at nervousheavitspodcast at gmail.com and search for full episodes and clips on YouTube. Just search Nervous Habits Podcast. If you have not already, please rate and review the pod on Apple Podcasts. We'd really appreciate you taking a minute and doing that. And remember, to all those kids listening, don't do drugs. Maybe in 15, 20 years when they're legal. But for now, just follow the law. Take care and stay nervous.